Welcome to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. Our vision is winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. Make sure to subscribe from wherever you're listening to continue hearing life-changing messages every week. These powerful messages are sure to inspire you and keep you on track. Whether it's our late founder, Pastor Wayman Mitchell, or any of your favorite fellowship leaders worldwide, including Pastors Joe Campbell, Paul Stevens, Mark Olson, Tom Payne, Harold Warner, Richard Ruby, and many more, get ready to hear from God through this message. God. If you have your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 19 this morning, 1 Kings 19. I want to preface the sermon this morning. I am in no way or don't want to say that I have any expertise in this at all, but I am a student of observation. I observe, I watch, uh, I try to learn through that, and by watching how things are done, uh, there's impartation, and so over the years I've been able to watch and and uh, try to absorb much of this, and I was pondering the issue of discipleship, and I was pondering how it's done. I mean, we've hashed this for many, many years. We've gone over it many times. There's truth in all of what has been brought forth in all the preaching and the teaching that we've received over the years. But there's a question of how do we disciple men? And it comes up again and again because there seems to be a constant drifting from biblical pattern and what God has for us into the realm of personality many times. And that's not all bad. There's much good in that. But there is a balance that has to be made. And in many times, I, I've, I've observed personally, many men take a very hands-on approach. They make sure that their disciples are perfect. They dress the right way. They have to speak the right way. Uh, there's certain things they do. I mean, everything is orchestrated, laid out to the letter, and put in place in their lives, and there's value in that to a degree. And then there's other pastors who never tell them anything and just figure they're supposed to know. So in between there, there's a balance in this, and everything we do has a balance to it. And so I began to ponder this, began to talk to some of the leaders and some men, and uh, tried to come to a conclusion in my own mind about some of the things that needed to be done in discipleship, because I'm learning, and I and I want to do that well. And so I tried to recall how Pastor Mitchell discipled myself and other men that were saved during the time I was in Prescott. And I was interested because as I began to talk with some of them and remembered myself, you know, Pastor Mitchell many times did have direct involvement with us and give us direction and insight and bring discipline and correction to bear. But mostly he gave us practical things, things that were just practical to do hands-off and practical, giving us opportunity to find God. He was an example, he lived an example, and he put that example out. And in that, he allowed us as disciples to come to a place where we could find where God lived, where we could touch heaven, and God could help us to grow. This wasn't contrived, he did not force this upon us, but he wanted us to learn how to find God. And I believe there's a key element in that, and by no means, you know, this is anything new, but I really feel that God is challenging us because as we see our fellowship growing and enlarging, we see the mission field opening up and so many young men and women coming in and getting saved that have a heart for God. I think it's critical in the realm of discipleship how we disciple people. 
how we work with them and how we deal with them in issues. And one of the errors I, I believe I've seen, and again, I'm no expert, is that when young men are in the field, their first pastorate, they begin to get a few people in, they begin to take a position of uh, where they are overseeing these people and they become uh, cleaning people and uh, polishing people and uh, uh, chore uh, doers. And, and the discipleship really isn't there. These people will perform for you. They will do things for you. But that's not discipleship. And so I want to talk about it a bit. I'm sure it'll be talked about again and probably better, but I just want to do my share, my part, what I feel God has me to do. First Kings 19, 19 through 21, if you've turned there in your Bibles. It says, So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the twelfth. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took the yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh, using the oxen, oxen's equipment. He gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and followed Elijah and he became his servant. So in this portion of Scripture, there's some interesting things. And one of the things I want to talk about firstly is working with a calling. One of the things we really do need to understand is that calling is not something we can produce in men. Calling is something sacred. It comes from God. It's an issue of the heart. It's something that God puts in someone. It's something that God draws upon them with. This is not something that we can make happen in a life. We cannot make people have a calling. And we cannot usually tell when someone has a calling. Well, they got talent. They sing like angels. They can play every instrument well. Their family's intact. They tithe. They give. They're on outreach. And that's all great. We need all those things. But that's not calling. That's not calling. That's called salvation. That's called being really saved. They're saved. They're on outreach. They're involved. They want to do things. That's salvation. Calling is a different arena. Calling is something where God reaches in and touches your life. And they know it. But many times, especially when we're young in ministry, we see that and we see, you know, we see Barbie and Ken come in. <laughs> Honey, look, they're married. <laughs> and man, look, they're dressed nice. They give. They say they like our preaching. And so all these things are happening and we see this as a sign from God that somehow this level of involvement and ability is somehow God showing us that these are the ones. We cannot rely on that. We cannot rely on that. We have, there has to be a different dimension involved. And even Samuel, when God talks to him and says, you need to go and you need to go and anoint the next king, he's in the house uh, and he's there, and you need to go and have a dinner and call these men, and I'll show you who's going to be king. And it's interesting, in uh, 1 Samuel 16, uh, he begins to do this. He follows God in verse 6 and 7. And so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. He can see the calling. He sees, oh, this is the one. He's tall. He's handsome. He's built. He's got it together. This man has got to be the man. But the Lord said to him, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. I've refused him. 
The Lord does not see as man sees. For the man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. This is a heart issue. This is something that a man has to have in his heart. This is something that we can't see. We can't produce. We cannot put this in a man. And if we go back in our text, just prior to the verses we read in verse 16, God speaks to Elijah and says, And you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, the king over Israel. In Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Maloah, you shall anoint his prophet in your place. See, there's a calling involved. Elijah just didn't decide on his own to go and throw the mantle on this guy. He didn't just say, you know what, I like this guy, Elisha. He's a hard worker. He's working, he's taking care of his family, he's doing things, so I'm just going to put the mantle on him. He must be the one. No, God called him, and God put that in place and put something in Elisha's heart. This was something God did. And it was nothing that Elisha could control or involve himself with. In fact, it's interesting, when Elijah is giving him the mantle, Elisha says, hey, let me go back. Let me kiss my family. Let, let me spend some time here before I involve myself. He says, what have I done? This isn't for me. He says, I've not done anything to you. This is not for me. This is an issue you've got to wrestle with God. You've got to find God. You've got to come forward. You've got to step out. You go back. It's no problem. I've not done anything to you. And I really recall many times Pastor Mitchell saying, look, I didn't call you. You came to me and said you wanted ministry. I remember conversations like that. You told me you had a calling. I'm facilitating your calling. I'm here to help you in your calling. But I'm not giving you a calling. I can't. It's from God. And these are the things that sometimes we have to look deeply at and see. Is there a calling? Have they come to us or are we telling them they have a call? Hey, bro, you know, man, I see you, man. You're really rising up. God's going to use you. And, you know, God's got his hand. And, and God's going to do certain things. With you. And I can see that God's calling you to ministry. Be careful with those words. Because there's many men that have come back from the field that were told they had a calling, that have failed, and they blame you. And they look you in the eye and say, you know what, man, I wasn't called, and you sent me out, and I couldn't make it, and now I have, I'm disgraced. That's a dangerous thing, Pastor. This is a man's destiny and life in God. We have to be very, very careful with this. This is something we have to watch over, and it's sacred. How many have gone out, and they come back, and nothing happens? Because they looked good, and we invested, and we, you know, we were, in our heart of hearts, we want to help. There's no doubt. But we told them they were called. They never came to us. And how many others that you thought weren't going to make it? <laughs> how many others that, ah, oh, yeah, that, you know. And God reaches in because there's something in the heart that God can touch. He says, you know what? He may be a knucklehead, but I can use knuckleheads. And so God can reach into that, but we have to be sensitive to God. And what God is doing, calling, is a man who identifies he has one. He's got to find it. He's got to come to us and say, you know what, Pastor? I really believe God wants me to preach the gospel. I can work with that. And I have to work with that. That's what God has called us to do to facilitate that man's life and to help him find his destiny in God. Disciple makers have to be able to do that. And if we're going to do that, we have to develop the calling. This is what Elijah is doing. He throws the mantle on him. He says, follow me. Watch me. Be with me. See what I do. Let it become a part of your life. This is what needs to be happening. We need to let them do some things. We need to allow them to be released. We need to allow them to develop 
in a ministry function. That means it would be really good if you let them preach an altar call once in a while. If you let them run their own outreach without interference. Oh. If you allow them to go and do what needs to be done to develop in them something for God. Because that has to happen if they're going to go in the field and be successful. Elisha wasn't asked just to run errands. He he called, come on, follow me, watch me, see what I'm doing, be with me, be a part of this. And Jesus did the same thing. When the disciples came to Christ after John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, uh, he said, What do you want? He says, Come and see. Uh, We want to, you know, we know where you're living. Come and see. He didn't give them a set of rules. He didn't say, hey, you know, bro, you don't have the, the right tie. That tie really is lousy with that shirt. And so you really got to, you know, you got to, and your hair, you know, you got to trim that down a little bit. He just said, come and see. Come observe. Let this sink into your life. Let this become a part of you. Luke 9, 1 and 2 says, Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God. He sent them. And in Luke 10, it says he appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. They were on their own. They were functioning in ministry. They were released to do something. In fact, the man that has the son who's epileptic comes to Jesus. You know, I went to the disciples and they couldn't cure him. They were allowed to fail. They were allowed to make mistakes. I know Jesus says, oh, these perverted guys, what a mess. But they were allowed to do that. And that failure became a learning experience for them when he says, here's the reason. This is what you need to do. This is how you develop this in your ministry. Prayer and fasting and all that Jesus talked to them about. They were active. They weren't being told everything to do. One of the hardest things we face as pastors and as people who want to disciple other men is releasing the ministry that God has given us into the hands of men who are less capable and less knowledgeable. But you have to do that. You have to let them have it. If you're going to develop men, you've got to let them develop. That's difficult for some of us. I can tell you from personal experience, I'm a hands-on kind of guy. I like things tight. Gig line. I want it in there, man. I want to, you know, put it in place. You know, iron in the creases, you know. But over time, I had to learn, if these men are going to develop, I can't tell them everything. I've got to let them learn. And sometimes it's the hard way. In fact, most of us learn better the hard way, I think. The kind of folks we deal with, they learn better the hard way. And so we have to allow that to transpire. But to many of us, the only way we feel secure is when we totally control every move. Because we don't want anybody to see our disciple make a mistake on an outreach. We want it perfect. But the problem is they go in the field and you're not there. Now they've got a function. But because you're so perfect with them, they won't call you and tell you they failed. They won't call you and tell you they're struggling. They won't tell you anything for fear of admonishment. And so they just back off and this causes problems. See, we need to have that. This calling must be developed. Interesting article I read by a man named Paul Adams. He does motivational speaking and things. It says, last week I wrote about scaring your employees into submission. We can say disciples into preaching. It says, this week I have a few words about squashing them into non-thinking androids. A style of leadership that is cousin to the technique of fear, a management approach that keeps a tight rein on everything. That is, no one but you decides anything. This inefficient management style is known as micromanaging. 
a petty approach to managing every detail of your business, even to the preposterous notion of an inventory control for your paper clips. Have you seen the recent television advertisement, advertised by a leading office supply firm depicting a would-be titan who permits only a single pen in the office that all the staff has to share? Ridiculous, I know. But what a vivid example of micromanagement. If you do insist on micromanaging, you have a problem. And if you believe you must check on every detail, your style is symptomatic of insecurity and paranoia. It leads to little growth, discourages any human resource develop, development. It focuses on problems of detail and discourages teamwork. Eventually, it may bring about the failure of your business. If you don't trust your employees or their judgment, and you are unwilling to allow them to assume responsibility, you are cheating yourself of the talent you're paying for. As much as you want to, you can't build a one-person organization that will succeed in the long term. Micromanaging may work for a while, but in time it acts like a break on all progress. New ideas, new products, new markets are discouraged as the talent to create them uh, uh, has been imprisoned in the mind of just one person, you. It is your inability to pass the torch, thinking only you can win the race to success, that will sabotage the drive for the brass ring. So very interesting, this man has great insight. And, you know, God calls us not to create a calling, but to work with a calling. To work with a calling. Secondly, I want to talk about imparting vision, because we need vision. Without vision, we definitely perish, because we lose focus. And I think one of the difficult things is impartation, and we, we hear about it, and we know the terminology, but sometimes we, we just think, you know, vision, uh, you know, it's better caught than taught, and it is, and they will get some of that. But one of the things that we're facing is you cannot be an armchair pastor. You know, it's like a Monday morning quarterback. You're not at the game, but you're going to tell them all the mistakes they made at the game. You have to be involved. This can't be done from your office. This can't be done while you're studying. This has to be done in the field with the men. That means you need to go on outreach. Outreach. You need to be involved in an outreach. You have to go and lead the way. You have to be able to be out there witnessing and evangelizing and showing people what that's all about, showing what God has developed you in, showing how it works, because they want to see you do it too. They want to be involved with you, and they want to watch you do that. They want to see you in prayer every morning. They don't want to watch you stumbling in at 10 to 8 with your quad. Oh, okay, I'm ready now to pray. They, don't, you know, they want to see you in prayer. They want to see you lay hold of God. They want to watch you function in the position God has placed you in. They want to see you do that. They want to see you follow up on new converts. They want to see you develop converts. They want to see you involved. The pastor has to be in the public arena of life. Living an example, it can be followed. He has to do this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, Wherefore I beseech you, be you followers of me. For this cause I've sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ as I teach everywhere in every city. Timothy was with Paul on outreach. He watched Paul win souls. He watched Paul plant churches. He watched Paul pioneer. He saw Paul get beaten. He watched all these things transpired. And Paul says, you know what? I can send this man to you because he's watched, he's observed, he's been involved. There's been impartation. He's going to show you exactly what I'm like. 
Wouldn't you like to be exactly like your pastor? I would. Maybe 40 or 50 years I'll get there, but I would. We, I, that's what I crave. And we should all be looking at that. You know, this is something that we have to press into. You know, Pastor Mitchell, if you watch him, and I can't talk about your pastor. I didn't sit under him. I, talked to, I sat under Pastor Mitchell. So that's who I can reference from. Watch what he does. Before service, he's shaking hands with people that don't like him. It's a revelation, huh? He's shaking hands with everybody, treats them with respect, learns their names. He knows who these people are. He shows them interest. He gives them time. He's not aloof. He doesn't walk in the back door uh, you know, on Sunday morning, five minutes before service, sit down, and then disappear behind the curtain when service is over. He's involved. He comes down after service. He stands in front of that pulpit for 20 to 30 minutes ministering and counseling and praying and doing all that needs to be done for that congregation. This is something I observed. He didn't have to tell me he was doing that. This is things we picked up and observed as disciples and applied them to our lives because when you're doing that, an observant disciple is going to see your life and apply it to his life. You're not going to have to say, hey, hey, come here. Stand right, watch what I do. Stand right there. Now, now listen, you've got to pray exactly like this. Hand has to be here and here. He, does, he didn't do that. He just showed us by a life lived for God what needed to be done. Now, this is a two-edged sword. Now, this takes the pastor who is willing to invest in a disciple, and it's going to take a disciple who's willing not only to receive but trust his pastor. You have to trust your pastor. You have to be willing to receive when he's giving you something. In 2 Kings 2, 9 and 10, it says, And it came to pass... When they were gone over, that Elijah said to Elisha, What shall I do for you before I be taken away from you? And Elijah said, I pray you, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And he said, You've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me, when I'm taken from you, it shall be so, but if not, you won't. Interesting. He says, If you can see me, if you can see into the supernatural arena of God, because the chariots are coming, these things are going to be happening. I'm going up in a world and all this is going to take place. If you can see that, if you've learned the lesson, if you trust me, if you've trusted me to the point where you've come into this ministry and you've gained an impartation of God and where God is and how God moves, and if you see that, you'll, you'll be given that. But if not, you won't. You may function, but there's going to be a lack. You have to trust your pastor. Elijah was willing to impart, but Elisha was willing to receive. He was willing to take that from his pastor, that to touch his life, and allow that to direct him. And I'm worried a bit sometimes, talking to disciples that have been saved three years that know so much more than I. I don't know everything. I don't know a lot of stuff. I'm dumber than a rock on some things. Every time I read the Bible, I realize how ignorant I am. But you know, some things your pastor does know how to do. He's done it. And he's been involved in it. You've got to trust that. Amen. Many of you work for Ford. You have a better idea. But if you've read the uh, Wall Street reports lately, they're going bankrupt. And so you need to sometimes have some trust. Uh, and it has to become personal, not only to the pastor who's doing the impartation, but to the disciple who's trying to learn. It's got to be personal to you. This has to be something in your heart, again, that God has developed and that God is growing in you and building in you that you've got to be able to trust your pastor and release your heart to him. You've got to do that. 
Oh, but I've been hurt in the past, and so has everyone else. We've all been hurt. You put the Band-Aid on, you suck it up, and you go for God. We've been hurt, there's no doubt. Many have been hurt here. But that doesn't mean that now this one's going to hurt you. And you have to be open to that and willing to that. He's telling Elisha, if you want this, you've got to be open to this. You've got to have a dynamic in your life. You've got to be willing to receive this. This is a hard thing, but you can do this. And if you do it, God will bless you. We need to be people that embrace that. See, the sons of the prophets were a little different. They're trying to distract him. Hey, you know, your master's being taken up today. <laughs> and he just says, hold your peace. I don't want to hear about that. He says, I'm focused on the, on the work here. I'm focused on discipleship. I'm following him. I'm with him. I'm watching him. Yeah, I know he's going to be taken away. That doesn't mean I'm not his disciple anymore. He says, I still trust this man. My heart's linked. There's a link here. I'm not breaking it because he's being taken away. That's something that's going to remain. That's something that's going to be in place for a long time. They're discouraging this man's loyalty. Ooh. Moving quickly. He didn't doubt his pastor's motives. He didn't doubt him at all. He followed him till the end. He developed till the very last possible moment. And every disciple's perception about their pastor is critical to their development. If you doubt him, if you're suspicious of his motives, if you don't think he's got your best interest at heart, you will never develop. Because you're always looking for some underlying factor of him trying to take advantage of you. It's a two-edged sword. We have to be willing to impart. You have to be willing to receive with trust and honesty. And it's a clear call here to follow. That's why it's a word disciple means a learner, someone who learns. We have to embrace that. If you're a disciple here, you're still learning. And sometimes it takes a few years. Sometimes it takes a lot of years. But you're learning. And let, you have to let God develop you through your pastor. Luke 6.40, the disciple is not above his master. But everyone that is mature shall be like his master. You never stop being a learner. I'm always talking to men, trying to find out what they think and how they think so I can learn. When I was writing this sermon, I called a couple of the brothers. And I called one of my friends. He's from New Jersey, too, so we're both crazy, so it works really well when we talk. And so Pastor Lamb gave me some great insights. So I'm not silly enough to just, oh, eh. I, you know, I got it together. No, I want his insight. I want some input here. I called a couple of other men, got some things from them, picked their brain a little bit to put this together. And that is because you're learning all the time. You see, I'm still Pastor Mitchell's disciple. I will be his disciple, period. Period. I will always be his disciple as long as I'm drawing breath. I will never be above him. That's pretty scary. But I'm hoping to be like him. Because I trust him with my life. I trust him with my destiny. Because I know he's doing this to help me, not to hurt me. And you've got to embrace that as a disciple. Your pastor's trying to help you. He sees things you don't see, knows things you don't know. And we have to be open to receive from this. Lastly, there has to be a dimension of God involved in this. Men, this is so far beyond us. We have the destiny of men's lives in our hands. You should be scared about that. You should say, whoa, I can kill this guy. I could ruin his life. I could send him into the wrong place because of what I think and damage him beyond repair. This is something that is so potent. 
And it's not by any talent or innate ability we have. God has to be involved. Elijah took instruction from God. He says, this is the man you need to touch. He's called. Elisha responds, I'm the guy. Yes, I'll do that. Then he begins to impart. But at the very end, he says, you know what? You've got to be able to see into this realm. God's got to be involved in this. I can't fabricate this in your life. I can't make this work for you. I can't gather in your life. You've got to be able to pick up this thing once I go and take it forward. And that's only going to determine your future if you get into your future. If you don't, you won't. He says, your future is determined by what you do with this. And he allowed him to do some things. He released him to do things. And as our relationship grows and develops, so does impartation from our pastor. But God's got to be involved. They had to trust God to be in the, in the process. Disciple, are you trusting God? Do you trust God that he's involved with your destiny? That he's placed you where you need to be? Under a man that you need to be under? Yeah, well, he's mean. And you probably are too, so it's a great combination. It'll work well. Iron sharpens iron. He'll be able to get those rough edges right off. And so sometimes, you know, we, we wonder, oh, am I in the right place? Uh, you know, maybe if I was in, uh, you know, brother so-and-so is always so nice to me at conference. Yeah, in case he doesn't pastor you. So we have to have God involved in this, and God has to be real to the disciple and the pastor. Disciple, is God real to you? Can you touch his throne in prayer? Can you find where God lives and reach into that dimension and touch heaven and bring it to bear in your life? That's critical for you. See, Pastor Mitchell always released us to find God. I've been in Redlands 12 and a half years, been pastoring a couple years longer than that, but i got a few of my folks here, praise God. And so, <laughs> but in that time, Pastor Mitchell has never said, you've got to do this, 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 and this. I'd call him and say, Pastor, what do you think? He says, you want my opinion? Yes. Okay, try this, try this, but find God. Find God, pray. He says, I'm praying, you pray. Find God. Find out what God's doing in your city. Find the will of God. Find the mind of God. We were released. In fact, we were expected to be there. You know, I never talked about ministry with Pastor Mitchell until I was already on staff. We never had intimate conversations about ministry. He's a busy guy. He's flying all over the world. But he lived a life I could follow. And that's where I got my impartation from, watching him, watching him minister, watching what he did and trusting that God had put me there for a reason. But there's no substitute for the supernatural involvement of God. 2 Kings 2.14 says, Elijah took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the water and said, Where's the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also smitten the waters, they parted here and there, and Elisha went over. See, there was some impartation made there that when he took that mantle, he says, God, I trust you, I believe you, show me your power. I have, my pastor's gone. I have to have this. He's not better than his pastor. He's like his pastor. And there's a supernatural dimension that can only come as a man finds God in his life and applies God to his life. We all have to do this. The destiny of not only individual men, but our fellowship is at stake. It only takes one generation of failure to ruin a move of God. One generation of failure to ruin a move of God. God, help me. I don't want to be a failure at that. I want to be able to release to men, let them go and fail. 
Because in failure, you learn. Pat Riley, when he was the coach of the Lakers, um, they were poor this year, very bad showing. Anyway, but I'm not bitter. And, uh, but when he was the coach, he says the reason they could never win a championship is because they didn't learn how to lose. They never learned how to lose well. And once they did that, once they figured out it wasn't the end of life, they could learn from their mistakes, apply them, and they had victory. In fact, they had uh, three championships in a row, four championships. Tremendous. But see, they had to learn through failure. Failure is not final, and it's not fatal. It can be a help. And when God's involved, you can learn from it. Jesus told his disciples, this kind doesn't come out, but by prayer and fasting. He says, you've missed it, but you can develop and you can learn. Practical discipleship is what we need. Hands-on, yes, that's valuable. Hands-off is valuable too. Let your men develop. Let them find God. Let them come to you and tell you they have a calling. Don't, don't be walking around behind them. So, you know, a conference is coming. And so, brother, uh, how you doing? I haven't been in prayer in a while here. Uh, hey, uh, praise the Lord. Don't you want to go to a city? You know, in fact, I think uh, this city, you know, God's been showing me. Don't do that. Let them come to you. Let them show you their heart. You'll link with that. It's a great supernatural thing that happens when some man will trust his life with you, to you, and you can reach into that. It's a powerful dynamic. Now, I have some men in my church that came in, didn't like me at all. One of them's here. It's the truth. Old Rick came in with his ponytail. He's tacked down. He's wearing his muscle shirt. He just got out, did eight years. At college. <laughs> he gets out. And he heard about the door, and so he told me later, he said, I was looking for this big door, this church with a big door, man. You know, was... So he finally comes in. He gets saved. And after a couple of services, he uh, walks up to me, and he's like this. And, you know, Rick used to bench over 400 pounds. And I'm going like, ooh, this doesn't look good. He's a big boy. How big a boy are you? No. And so, and so he says, you know what? Uh, I hear you used to be a cop. I said, yeah, I did. And he smiles. And he goes, you see that? And I said, no, there's no teeth there. He goes, yeah, you know how come? Because some cop kicked him out of my face. I said, oh, so you was the big mouth on the street. He goes, okay, I can stay here. You're for real. And I said, thank you, Lord, for mercy. You'd have killed me. But here he is today, pastoring, doing well, God helping him. That's, that's supernatural. That's supernatural. That's a life developed by God, through God, for God. That's what we need. That's all I have. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening to the sermon podcast of the Virginia Beach Potter's House Church. 
Were you blessed by today's message? Let us know. Please leave us a rating on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. We'll be back next time with another life-changing word from heaven. God bless. God bless.